Hey, let's pray together this morning. Father, we are so grateful uh, for life. Lord, thank you for the ministry of Thrive. As we saw last week in Scripture, that the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy, to, to murder, to kill, to take life. But you have come to give life, life abundantly. We are so thankful that we serve a God that is passionate about life. So Lord, thank you. Thank you for the life that is in this building, the life that is in this room. As I look around and see all these babies and, and all the babies that share this wall with us, Lord, we are so grateful uh, for this life. Um, but Lord, thank you for the testimonies of eternal life that come from Thrive also. And, and um, grateful that you are still and will always be in the business of redemption of taking what is broken and making it whole again, taking what is lost, making it found, taking what is dead and making it alive. That's who you are, God. We're so grateful for the power of the gospel and the passion that you have for life. So I pray, Lord, as we turn now to the reading, the teaching, the preaching of your word, that it would accomplish all that you want it to. It would be profitable for teaching, for correction, for rebuke, and for training us to live in, in, the, in the way of life, in the path of life, the way of righteousness. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. You guys go ahead and have a seat for me. Hey, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to Acts chapter 18. Let me pan this off real quick to Coleman. There you go. All right, so Acts chapter 18. Um, so many of you may remember, but around Thanksgiving, I lost my uh, maternal grandfather. He, he went uh, to be with the Lord. He was 85 when he died uh, back near Thanksgiving. And actually today would have been his 86th birthday. Uh, so this week, as I was kind of reflecting on his life, um, it, it really, his life really serves as a great introduction um, to our text today. Uh, my, great, my grandfather really was a great man, um, but as the world deems it or defines it, he, he was by no means extraordinary. Like in terms of charisma or a gregarious personality or a huge following, he, he didn't have any of that, but he was faithful. He was faithful. Um, apart from... Um, a couple years in the, the military, he spent uh, all of those 85 years born, raised, lived, worked in the same little community. That community was about 7,000 people, according to the population. Um, his father, so my great-grandfather, started a small barber and beauty supply shop in that community that he worked for and owned and led for 50 years. One singular career for 50 years. Um, but what struck me about him is when he passed away and we had the opportunity to do the visitation, uh, you know, the family got together and I got to see um, all of my cousins, so all of his grandkids, seven in total. And then all of their kids were there. So his great grandkids, who was 12 in total, I mean, really a life of legacy. And what we know is that uh, through his, his generosity, really, he was able to set aside money for his grandkids and his great grandkids. That's Proverbs 13, verse 22. It says, a good man leaves an inheritance to his children's children. Um, but once the family kind of had time for a visitation, you know, we opened the doors to the community, y'all, and I, I kid you not, from 6 p.m. to 9 p.m., it felt like every person in that community, all 7,000, were just coming through. And all I heard after shaking hands and standing there and meeting people that I hadn't seen, you know, in 20 years, just hearing over and over again things like this, like, your grandfather employed me. I, I worked for him for 20 years. He was such a great man. Or I rented from him in a time of my life where I needed help. If it weren't for him, I don't know where I would be. Or uh, he taught me what it looks like to be a biblical deacon. I learned how to serve the church by watching your grandpa. I mean, on and on and on. I kept hearing these things. You know, it, it did so much for our family, but it really reminded me of what impact your life can have when you're just faithful. 
you know, just faithful. Like nothing, nothing super special, no charisma, no huge following, no brand, you know, so to speak. Just faithful is what my grandfather was. And as I was thinking about him this week, I started thinking about our, our journey through the book of Acts so far. Really, over the last several weeks, we've, we've looked at the Apostle Paul. And it's easy to look at the Apostle Paul and see the incredible impact in ministry that, that he had. These, these magnificent exploits and walk away every Sunday going, man, Paul's, Paul's amazing. But, but what about me? Right? Paul, Paul's like a different category, right? I'm, I'm just a stay-at-home mom. Or I'm, I'm just a soldier. Or I'm just an engineer. I'm just a port logistics manager. I'm just a teacher. And on and on and on and go, right? We can come every Sunday. We can hear about Paul and then walk away discouraged going, well, what about me? Like, I'm just a fill-in-the-blank. And, y'all, I just want to say, before we even read our text today, that, that in the kingdom of God, there, there is no I'm just, okay? Because if you're in the kingdom of God, it means the spirit of God lives and dwells within you. Y'all, that's the same spirit that actually rose Jesus from the dead. So if that spirit dwells in you, there, there can never be I'm just fill in the blank. Because you are now a vessel of the spirit of God, an instrument of the spirit of God who has been given to you to engage the mission of God for the glory of God. You following me? So it's easy for us, again, to magnify the Apostle Paul and then at the same time minimize our own roles, our own unique personalities, giftings, whatever you, whatever you do, wherever you go. We are all vessels of God's spirit for his glory. So as we read our text today, that's what I want us to think about. How do I, whatever you do, wherever you go, whoever you are, how do I engage the mission of God for the glory of God. So Acts chapter 18, let's begin in verse 1, and I'm going to cut us off at at verse 22. So Acts 18, verse 1. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth, and he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome, and he went to see them. And because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked. For they were tent makers by trade. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. When Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. And when they opposed and, and when they opposed and reviled him, he shook out his garments and said, Your blood be on your own head. I am innocent. From now on I will go to the Gentiles. And he left there and went to the house of a man named Titius Justus, a worshipper of God. His house was next door to the synagogue. Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord and together with his entire household. And many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent, for I am with you. And no one will attack you to harm you, for I have many in this city who are my people. And he stayed a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. But when Galileo was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews made a united attack on Paul and brought him before the tribunal, saying, This man is persuading people to worship God contrary to the law. But when Paul was about to open his mouth, Galileo said to the Jews, If it were a matter of wrongdoing or vicious crime, O Jews, I would have reason to accept your complaint. But since it is a matter of questions about words and names in your own law, see to it yourselves. I refuse to be a judge of these things. And he drove them from the tribunal. And they all seized they all seized Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue, and beat him in front of the tribunal. But Galileo paid no attention to any of this. Verse 18. After this, Paul stayed many days longer, 
and then took leave of the brothers and set sail for Syria, and with him Priscilla and Aquila. At Centre he cut his hair, for he was under a vow. And they came to Ephesus, and he left them there. But he himself went into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. And when they asked him to stay for a longer period, he declined. But on taking leave of them, he said, I will return to you if God wills. And he set sail from Ephesus. When he had landed at Caesarea, he went up and greeted the church and then went down to Antioch. All right, let's pause there. So I know that's a, that's a weird spot to pause. You, everybody in you know, the type A's want to finish that paragraph, okay? We, we will. But the reason I want us to stop there is because verse 22, in effect, is concluding Paul's second missionary journey. Okay, so remember kind of where he's been. He's been on his second missionary journey, fulfilling his commission to preach Christ among the Gentiles to the ends of the earth. And last week in Acts chapter 17, we saw that he was preaching the gospel in Athens. This week, he has moved to Corinth. And y'all, Athens and Corinth couldn't be more opposite than one another. Okay, Athens was a city of about 10,000 people, famous for its culture and intellectualism. Corinth is a population at this time of about 200,000, famous for its, its commerce and, and economics. Corinth sat on the isthmus, remember that geography class, remember? Down at the very bottom of the boot of Italy. So if we had a map, you'd see it's on the coast. And it was about three and a half miles wide. And it was incredibly important to trade because it was famous that in the, at the very southern tip of um, Italy, the waters would be treacherous. So, so no sailing or captain wants to ship around Italy. So what they would do is they'd harbor in Corinth, unload all their goods. People would traverse those goods, the three and a half miles from coast to coast through Corinth, and then put them on boats to continue on their journey. So this, this place was a huge place of trade, lots of transients, lots of people. And with those people came a lot of carnality, a lot of, of sex and, and wealth and blatant sin in the city of Corinth. It, it would almost have the reputation of modern day like, like Las Vegas, right? Whatever happened in Corinth tended to try to stay in Corinth. And Paul arrives. He gets there ready to preach the gospel, but he's alone. We have to remember, right? He left Silas and Timothy in Macedonia, in the area of Macedonia. Now he's in Achaia, in the city of Corinth. And what does he do there? Let's look at verse two. He found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy, Rome, with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome, and he went to see them. And because he had the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for they were tent makers by trade. So, so just let me conclude kind of what's going on in Rome. Rome was in disarray because of the hot contention over this man named Jesus Christ. Like there was Messianic Jews and there were Christian Jews, or I mean Orthodox Jews, who were really at war with one another, contending over this person of Christ. So Claudius had had enough in the city of Rome, so he just kicks them all out, Orthodox and Messianic. So Priscilla and Aquila, obviously believers in Christ, had relocated to Corinth, and they were tent makers by trade. The same trade that Paul would have learned in Tarsus or Cilicia um, as a child. And here's what I want us to see. Upon finding this couple, when Paul found a, uh, Priscilla and Aquila, what did he do? He worked. Y'all, he worked. And that's really what I want point number one to be for us this morning. To engage the mission of God for the glory of God, you can work. Work is a way for you to engage God's mission for God's glory. Paul would later say in Colossians 3.23 that whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for man. Did y'all know, I was doing some, some research this week, and, and did you know that you'll spend almost 30% of your waking life working? 
almost 30%, a third of your life is going to be spent working. And yet we spend a third of our life not just working, but hating it, right? Grumbling about it, like moaning about it, hating it, dreading work, assuming that work has to be a consequence of sin, right? The, the, con- the concept of work, that we have to work, we assume because it's so terrible and we dread it so bad that it's just a result of the fall. But y'all, it's not. Work was actually given to us by God before the fall. Work precedes the fall, which means that work is part of God's plan for your life to find pleasure, to find enjoyment, to find satisfaction, to find fulfillment. And some of you are looking at me going, yeah, you're, you, don't, you don't know my work. <laughs> I don't have to, okay? I know. I know I don't know your work, but I can promise you that God has created work for us for our good because he's good. And work preceded the fall. The consequence of, of the fall on work was just making it more difficult. Work now has a level of toil, a level of pain to it, as well as a level of pleasure and a level of satisfaction. But work itself, y'all, was created good. And unlike other creatures of the creator, so unlike animals, y'all, we were created to find meaning in life. Y'all know that? To have purpose, to have meaning in life. Work, as part of God's creation, is part of that fulfillment. In work, you can actually find life and meaning. Now, we take it too far, right? It can be all that we find. We can find all of our life and all of our meaning in work, and that's ungodly. That's idolatry, which is what we looked at just a couple of weeks ago. But work in and of itself, y'all, is good. Designed to be a part of the fulfillment that God's provided. Another reason that we work is not just to find purpose in God's creation, but, but is to provide our needs. Why was Paul working in Corinth? When he got there, why did he begin working? Because he was hungry. Because he needed clothes. Because he needed some lodging there in Corinth. Work is a way that we provide our basic needs. And Paul was working uh, to do that. But here's the point. Paul would later tell the people in Corinth, whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Sometimes I think we grumble and and moan and, and hate our work because are we doing it unto the glory of God? Is our work actually a reflection of the glory of God? Let me ask you another question. Would you say you possess a strong work ethic? Uh, this is something we're trying to drive home with our kids, right? Nothing in life happens that's easy. We all have to work at things. Do we possess a strong work ethic? I really believe that your employer ought to be able to say, there's something different about the way this person works. Because you shouldn't be there just for a paycheck. Our work should be done unto the glory of God. Our work should be working heartily as for the Lord, not unto man. So, do you view your work as an opportunity to reflect God's glory? Are you working in such a way that that is engaging in the mission for the glory of God? Now, let me say a quick note about those who work but aren't compensated for it. I'm going to look at you stay-at-home mothers for a second, okay? All of you, uh, the, the mother's just like perked up, okay? Actually, before I talk to you stay-at-home mothers, let me talk to you young husband and fathers, okay? Just because you come home from a 45 to 60-hour work week and feel entitled to sleep in, to not cook, to not do laundry, our security team would love to have board with you, okay? <laughs> and, and I know that's harsh, and it is a joke, okay? But y'all, like, just because your wife is not getting paid for what they're doing does not mean they're not working. They are working. All the wives just, just love it. But y'all, I get it. 
I come home tired. There, there are various responsibilities that we have to divvy up and have. But, but let me tell you just a, a quick experience. Annie left me for about six hours one day. It felt like six months. Six hours where I had to cook and, and clean and do some things. And when she got home, I kid you not, I looked her dead in the eye and I said, if you ever leave me, <laughs> I am going with you. Because there's no way I could do this. It is exhausting. Men, you know what I'm saying. Like, it is exhausting work. So just because there's not a paycheck, it doesn't mean that, that our wives or our mothers are not working. But at the same time, stay-at-home moms, just because you're not receiving a paycheck doesn't necessarily mean that you're working unto the glory of God. Are you staying at home in such a way that you're viewing that as a way to engage the mission of God for the glory of God? Oftentimes, in lieu of a paycheck, you are in a position to work for the glory of God because you're doing very unglorifying work, right? Unglorifying work like changing diapers or, or folding laundry and all those things that nobody will ever look at you and go, thank you for. That is very unglorifying work, but you can do that work in such a way that you're engaging the mission of God for the glory of God because you're working unto him, right? Not unto man. So, no, I spent some time there, but in, incredibly important for us to see. Paul's amazing, but he also just worked. And there's a way for you to work to reflect the glory of God. So he worked to provide for himself, but let me also say this. He also worked to make sure that the preaching of the gospel wasn't a stumbling block for those in Corinth. Okay, Corinth was such a popular city and such a transient city that commentators say many itinerant preachers would often come through Corinth. And they'd stand on the street corner and they'd give their theories or their lectures or even false gospels from Scripture just to, get a, just to get a collection, just to pass the plate. And Paul told the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, he said, Did I commit a sin to you in humbling myself so that you might be exalted? Because I preached God's gospel to you free of charge. He also says in 2 Corinthians 2, it says, For we are not like so many peddlers of God's word for a profit. He didn't want his audience to think, hey, I'm just up here staying so that I can really get to the switch and bait, so I can really just get to passing the plate. That's not what Paul was about. Paul wanted them to know that he was sharing his life, his passion. He was sharing truth, not just for a profit. So to make sure he did that, he worked Monday through Friday. And verse 4 says, on the Sabbath day, he would go into the synagogues, he would preach the gospel. So Monday through Friday, he's working. On the Sabbath day, he's preaching. So Paul worked, y'all. Secondly, though, I want us to see that uh, Aquila and Priscilla also worked. This, this couple, which we don't know a lot about, and I'll share a little bit more about them here in a minute, actually seemed to be the employers of the Apostle Paul. It seemed that they joined him, came underneath, uh, that Paul came underneath them in this, this work of, of tent making. Y'all, when Paul first came to Corinth, he, he writes this in 1 Corinthians 2, verse 3. He says, when I first came, I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. Right, look back over Paul's second missionary journey or first missionary journey. Persecution, persecution, rejection, rejection. Then he ends up leaving his companion, Silas and Timothy, because he had to get out of Dodge. He's alone when he comes to Corinth, in pain, suffering. I can't imagine what he's going through. And what does he find? This beautiful married couple that are willing to employ him, to provide for him some stability, some comfort, some meaning, some purpose. Church, many of you are in positions where your work actually provides employment for others. Are you aware of the strategic opportunity that provides you to engage the mission of God for the glory of God? To actually be a covering for people who come to you vulnerable, 
now listen, I can hear my dad right now. I, I hear you. You're saying in your heart, you're going, listen, pastor, this ain't no charity. Okay. I get it. I'm not saying that you're giving the handouts. Priscilla and Aquila didn't give handouts. They gave Paul meaningful work. But as disciples of Jesus Christ, Priscilla and Aquila also, also had their work, their, their eye on, on something a little bit more. They were engaging in the mission of God for the glory of God. So let me ask you, employees, would your employees know that you're a disciple of Jesus by the way that you employ them? Would, you, would, would they know by how you speak and by how you live and by how you work that you're a believer in Jesus Christ? Because work is given to you for that purpose, for you to engage the mission of God for the glory of God. All right, so Priscilla and Aquila, employers, let me say one more thing about their work. Y'all, they worked remotely. Isn't that hilarious? Like long before COVID, like long before it became popular, Priscilla and Aquila were engaged in remote work. All right, we know that they were from Rome. But then they go down to Corinth, and after 18 months, so Paul spends 18 months in Corinth teaching the word, he wanted to go back to Antioch. He wanted to complete his second missionary journey. So he returned, and his return took him through the city of Ephesus. He didn't linger in Ephesus, but he left Priscilla and Aquila there, left them in Ephesus. And what did they do there? They kept working. And while they were working, they end up meeting this guy named Apollos that we're going to look at in the back half of our text. And they take him aside, and they mentor him, and they train him further in the ways of the Lord. They use their remote work to mentor Apollos. Apparently, after they were done in Ephesus, they went back to Rome. Because in Romans chapter 16, Paul says this at the very end of the book. He says, greet Priscilla and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ. Greet also the church in their house. So apparently, they were in Corinth. They were in Ephesus. Now they're in Rome all the while working. These were not some vocational, spiritual, special forces. They didn't receive their paycheck like Paul did from the preaching of the gospel. They were just workers, just workers. People who were strategically located in Ephesus and Corinth and in Rome, engaging the mission of God for the glory of God. Church, many of you have the same flexibility in your trade. Like many of you have the opportunity to work from anywhere and, and and so often I hear that we use cost of living and we use the housing market, right, to dictate where we land for our work. Y'all, I just think, actually, I know, I know that God will place you strategically if you open up your heart to him. What, what if instead of just looking at the housing market, instead of looking at cost of living, you looked at scripture and you looked at prayer and you said, God, where do you want me to go? I can go anywhere to engage this work. I can be a tent maker everywhere. Where would you want me to go? Somewhere strategic so I can engage your mission for your glory. That's powerful. And God will direct you if you seek him in that. Let me give another quick note, though, on remote work. This doesn't necessarily define remote work, but we have a lot in our church that aren't remote, but are transient, right? So meaning you have to work on site, but you, you get moved like every couple of years. Does this sound familiar to you guys? Okay. A lot of our military personnel, Uncle Sam's pushing you around. You're going to different places. Y'all, I have not been around our military community very long. But one thing I can see very clearly as a pastor is how strategic that is, how God will use you. Don't overlook the, the, the opportunity that God has in your job of putting you in strategic places for his mission and for his glory. He's sovereign, right? He's sovereign. He's making these decisions for you. So also welcome back to so many of ours who were at MCC. Okay? So I took some time around work, but y'all just had to say it. God has created work. And you're going to spend a third of your waking life working. But are you working to be engaged in his mission for his glory? Paul, Priscilla, and Aquila were. 
But another way that they're engaging his mission for his glory is also through generosity. Let's look at verse 5. When Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. I want you to do me a favor. Circle the word occupied. Okay, so if you're a note taker in, in the Bible, circle that word occupied. That word means to devote completely. When Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, remember, they had been left by Paul in Berea and in Thessalonica in Acts chapter 17. But when they arrived in Macedonia, it allowed, their arrival allowed Paul to devote himself completely to the word of God. How? Before this point, before Silas and Timothy got there, Paul was only preaching on the Sabbath, right? Only preaching on the Sabbath. Why? He needed to eat. Right? He had to provide for himself. But at this juncture, y'all, when Silas and Timothy came, from, uh, came to Corinth, they brought Paul financial gifts from other churches. They brought financial gifts for the Apostle Paul from other churches. Philippians chapter 4, verse 15 is, is what's happening here. In Acts chapter 18, Paul is referencing Acts 18 when he writes to the church in Philippi in, in chapter 4, verse 15. He says this, and you Philippians know, yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, that's Acts 17, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. The church in Philippi sent financial gifts to the apostle Paul so that he could occupy himself, fully devote himself to the preaching of the word there in Corinth. But it wasn't just the church in Philippi. Paul actually says it's churches in the region of Macedonia. That would include Berea. That would include Thessalonica. In 2 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul's writing to these people. So in Acts 18, he's preaching to Corinthians. Much later, he writes 2 Corinthians back to these people, and this is what he says. I robbed other churches by accepting support from them in order to serve you. And when I was with you and was in need, I did not burden you. For the brothers who came from Macedonia supplied my need. Who are the brothers that came from Macedonia? Silas and Timothy. Silas and Timothy come from Macedonia, and they supply Paul's need, so now he can quit his Monday through Friday, 9 to 5, and preach the gospel on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. It was the generosity of these other churches that engaged the mission of God for the glory of God. Financial giving does this, y'all. Paul would later write to these same people, once again in 2 Corinthians 9, about some biblical principles of giving. Here's one. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. Whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. He goes on, 2 Corinthians 9. For the ministry of this service, the ministry of giving, is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but is also overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. Church, Paul wanted his churches to be generous givers. Why? Because generous giving supplies the basic needs of the saints. Paul could eat and be clothed and have lodging because of the generous giving of these churches. But Paul would say it's more than that. It's not just supplying the needs of the saints. It's glorifying God by overflowing into many thanksgivings unto God. All right, let me give you an example. This is what this looks like. When you generously give to the, to the mission of God for the glory of God at our church, you provide the needs of the saints. Thank you. Okay. 
We eat. I get to preach. I get to do ministry all throughout the week because of giving. That is supplying the needs of the saints. It's also giving Cheerios to the 148 kids that are hungry and screaming and running in that wall right there, okay? It provides the basic needs of the saints. But y'all, more than that, this is what it does. When our family gets to sit down and eat, we look at God and go, God, thank you. Thank you for being good. Thank you for being caring. And thank you for being the provider in our life. It is multiplying thanksgiving and glory to God because of the generous, generous giving of the church. You see how much more important that is? It supplies the needs of the saint, yeah. But it increases glory unto God as we give thanks to God for his generous giving. Some of you, y'all, I know, you, you've been in churches that make it feel like it's all about money, right? And you're sitting there going, ah, I thought we found one, you know? <laughs> thought this one was different. I, you know, I, I, here we go again. They just want my money. Man, I, if, I could just have, if I could just look you all in the eye at the same time and say, I don't want your money. God wants your heart. And where your treasure is, your heart is also. And with integrity, I can stand here with a clear conscience and agree with the Apostle Paul in Philippians chapter 4, 17. This is what he says. I do not seek the gift. I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. That's what I want. I want God's glory to be magnified and more thanksgiving to be given unto him. I don't seek the gift. I seek the fruit that comes from the gift. So let me ask, are you giving in order to be engaged in the mission of God for the glory of God? And, and church, this is something we want to walk the walk in, not just talk the talk. We as a church, as a leadership, you have entrusted us to be a giving church, which means we're committed to 10% of everything you give to the ministry of the church, we're going to give it right back out. What that has looked like is in January, we had the opportunity to give 10% of what you gave to the planting of a local church here in Richmond Hill called Connection Church Richmond Hill. Wrote the check, gave it to them. And you know what? He called, that pastor called, and said, I was overwhelmed by how good God is. Yes. You got the gift. Great. God got the glory. That's, that's fantastic. What that meant in February is that we were able to give $1,000 each to four families that we're connected to through our church that serve internationally in international missions. They're engaged in the mission of God for the glory of God. We're able to give to them. And you know what response to that is? We got, a, we got an email from one of them, and I won't share too many details. But they had had a day where they had get, gotten quoted a tax bill anywhere between eight and $13,000. $8,000 to $13,000. In the country that they're living in, they were going to have to pay local tax to the equivalent of $8,000 to $13,000. They spent that afternoon weeping with their team leaders, crying. How are we ever going to pay this? They got home that night, checked their email, and saw that our church had given a mere $1,000. They said they began to weep and worship because it was a moment where God reminded them, I see you, I hear you, and I'll provide for you. That's what we want. It's not just about the giving of the gift. It's the result of that gift and how it glorifies God in it. And y'all, in March, we're currently getting to pray about who we can give to domestically. It's a fun thing. It's such a pleasure to join God because we'll never be out giving. So, and I got to speed up, but are you giving? If not, y'all, you're missing the opportunity to join God in his mission for his glory. But there's one more thing I want to say. Let's read beginning in verse 23. After spending some time there, there in Antioch, Paul departed and went from one place to the next through the region of Galatia and Phrygia, strengthening all the disciples. All right, so here he has begun his third missionary journey, which Coleman's going to pick up on next week. But then Luke jumps into a, a different kind of narrative. He introduces us to this man named Apollos. Look at verse 24. 
Now a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures, and he had been instructed in the way of the Lord. And being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he knew only the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. And when he wished to cross to Achaia, the brothers encouraged him. So when he's in Ephesus, okay, he wants to go to Corinth, which is in Achaia. And the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him, a letter of recommendation. And when he arrived, he greatly helped those who through grace had believed. For he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the scriptures that the Christ was Jesus. So what we have is a a transition. Paul's second missionary journey has concluded. Third is about to begin. And we meet this man named Apollos. Apollos was from Alexandria, which was from North Africa. But somewhere along this way, this, this Jewish boy had heard about Jesus and launched his own traveling ministry there in Ephesus. But Luke makes this incredibly interesting note in verse 25. He says that Apollos had been instructed in the way of the Lord. He was fervent in spirit. He spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus. Uh, He only knew the baptism of John, though. All right, y'all, I've studied like a thousand commentaries this week, and here's what I know. We don't know. We really don't know what Luke intended by this phrase. Coleman may be able to touch on it some because there's a similar situation going on there in Ephesus at the beginning of chapter 19. But suffice it for today that it was clear enough that there were some things in Apollos' teaching that were lacking. There were some things that he didn't understand more fully. So what happens? Priscilla and Aquila, those faithful employers who had once in Corinth, they're now in Ephesus, they take him aside in verse 26, and they explain to him the way of God more accurately. Here's the final point, y'all. Use your spiritual gifts. Use your work. Use your giving. Use your spiritual gifts to engage the mission of God for the glory of God. We don't know a lot about Priscilla and Aquila. But what we do know is they used everything they had to serve God for God's glory. We already see how they use their work. And and now they're using their spiritual gifts. All right, so there's two passages of Scripture I want to point your attention to about spiritual gifts. Romans chapter 12 and 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Okay, both of those passages list various gifts given by the Spirit of God. But those passages really are in harmony when it talks about the purposes of those gifts. What are the purposes of spiritual gifts? Here it is. That each person has been given different gifts, but all given by the same God for the same purpose, which is to engage his mission for his glory. Use them. You have been given gifts by the Holy Spirit to engage in his mission for his glory. Church, use them. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 28, you read about one of the gifts called the gift of helps, the gift of helping. It's a spiritual gift believed to aid or render assistance to the church. It's a unique ability to move toward those in spiritual need with a kind word or a scriptural truth. Priscilla and Aquila seem to have had it, y'all. Always helping, always coming alongside people. And Priscilla actually more than Aquila. Because of the seven times Priscilla and Aquila are listed in Scripture, five times Priscilla is listed first. That's unheard of for a woman to be listed first in this time period. But most commentators believe it's because of her strong gifting. So church, use your gifts. Study those Scriptures. Discover your gifts from, from exercising them. Like start serving. 
And I'm not talking about just serving within the walls of this little building. Although our kids department is always looking for you, okay? You can serve outside the walls. You heard from Reagan, who's probably exercising a gift of mercy serving through Thrive. You've heard that, that we also need through Thrive people who are willing to share the gospel and get out on the street. A gift of exhortation, whatever it is, use your gifts for the glory of God engaged in the mission of God. So let me conclude for us. Paul's remarkable. And it's so easy for us to look at Paul and go, I'm, I'm just a, right, fill in the blank. But y'all, we all have roles. We have all been called into the kingdom of God to advance the kingdom of God for the glory of God. So use your work, use your giving, and use your gifts to serve the mission of God for the glory of God. And just like my grandfather, y'all, a life faithfully given to just the simple exercise faithfully of those three things will result in God's glory and will result in his kingdom being advanced. So this is what we're going to do right now. As a continuation of our time in worship, we're, we're actually going to engage in communion. So um, John Ash, if you don't mind coming up and, and playing a little bit for us, if you're serving communion, you can make your way uh, to those locations. We'll begin to hand this out. As a reminder, y'all, communion is really a visible display of the gospel. In the elements, which, which is the bread that represents Christ's body and the, and the juice that represents Christ's blood, we get to remember Christ. Communion is a sacrament that was instituted by Christ himself. He told us to do this often, and he told us to do it in remembrance of him. So as the meal is passed out, um, I encourage you to, to do it in remembrance of him. Do it with a heart that is worshipful. Um, this meal is, is for the believer. It's for those who identify with the elements that are being passed out there. So if you're, if you're not a believer in Christ, if you're questioning, if you're asking questions, you're just not there yet, just I respectfully ask you to let those elements um, pass by you. But if you are a Christian, please take of those elements. Take a moment as John plays for us and remember Christ. Remember Christ. And I'll come back up and lead us through this, the taking of communion.